back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite having lack of experience, money, or connections. And we found the most ordinary person that we could... (laughs) for you off the street. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, today, actually, we are really fortunate to have our good friend, Profil Mathur. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, Profil Mathur. Profil Mathur. Wow. How long have you known uh, Profil Vadim? About 10 years, but uh, he never told me his last name <laughs> until now. So Profil is a serial entrepreneur and techie, a technophile. As a matter of fact, he has started several companies, has raised millions of dollars, has gone through some of the top accelerators in the world, including Techstars and Y Combinator, his sold companies. And now he's a CTO and partner at Comfrey. So Profil, we're really happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. I've been like listening to a lot of your shows since the beginning. So this is awesome to be part of it now. You're just saying that. <laughs> no, I actually, I did, I did, that's what we were talking about earlier. No, we appreciate your support and thanks a lot. Yeah. We've been each other's champions for a long time, even when maybe we shouldn't have been. Um, <laughs> we, we wanted to have Profil on the show today because consistently, ever since we met Profil 10 years ago when he was, I think, a junior at Northeastern University, we had recently graduated from Bentley. But ever since we met him, uh, he was one of our friends who always had the craziest, wildest ideas for businesses and somehow was able to run with them even when he had no business in, in starting them. We talk a lot about it on our podcast that oftentimes the most successful entrepreneurs don't actually have any direct experience in the industry that, that they're starting a business in. And most people, when they look at them and when they hear about their idea, they laugh at them, but they end up proving them wrong. And so because he's been so consistent about thinking big and then being able to execute on those very, very big ideas, even since he was 19, 20 years old, we wanted to tell you and find out from him how he did it and how he had the confidence to do that from such a young age. So we work with a lot of college students, and when they think about venture creation, their minds kind of go to one place. I want to start the next hot app, uh, or they're thinking about problems that every or most college students have. When you were in college, you came up with a business uh, that was selling to cab companies in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, something that's inherently difficult to do, but here you thought, I can do it. So I guess, what do you think made you think that you could attack a market that's difficult to attack? And why do you think that you were able to think big when other students were just trying to come up with the next Reddit or I can have cheeseburger or something like that? It's actually an interesting story. So that didn't happen through uh, my own like development, right? Like a lot of times when you start a company, you're starting it with a co-founder. And so if I want to bring it back a little bit, we, I had applied for Y Combinator at that time and then I had not gotten it. At that time, it was just Paul Graham, uh, Jessica Livingston, Paul Morris, and, uh, or Paul, whatever their names are, Robert Morris and another <laughs> Couple one. Couple of Pauls, yeah. Um, and I got rejected. My uh, friend had, uh, had like some personal issue with some girlfriend and he wanted to prove her wrong. So together that summer, we were like, man, like we have nothing to do. And we both feel like, terrible how do we like get out of this and the idea was to start a company because you know we had basically both fantasized about it 
And uh, he he came, we both came up with a bunch of ideas. I wanted to do stuff with like video because I was looking up the MPEG-4 standard as people try to do. They read through technical docs. I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> and uh, through a bunch of iterations, we tried a bunch of things, right? Like we started with like trying to create advertisings embedded in TV shows. We tried to create um, a news site for some reason. We tried to create things that we thought we were going to use. But... Um, None of them quite panned out. Like we, the way that we iterated through that is we started with an idea. We first found customers who would pay for it. And then we would try to see if they would validate our idea. And a lot of people just told us our ideas were terrible. So we iterated through a lot. And then we went to like, people started giving us ideas. And then we started going with them. And we had no idea what we were doing. We just wanted to do something because both of us were like, miserable. And um, one day during college, this is the summer had passed and we started classes. He called me and it's like, hey, do you want to do a cab advertising business? And I said, that sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. It sounds like nobody will want it. He's like, it works really well in New York. Um, I was like, cool, keep me post posted. But we're already working on this other company, which is to like help managers manage their teams better. I don't know. It was weird as a stock market for employees. It didn't make any <laughs> sense. And uh, I was really excited about it because it's a really strong technical problem. The next day he called me and he said, hey, I have 25 cabs lined up in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is close to Boston. I was like, okay, well, we should do that, right? Like we have a customer, we have something, we can go with it. So it actually started off like a really small idea, which was like, can we advertise inside of cabs? And the way it got bitter, bigger was um, iteratively. Uh, we started off like, can we even do a business? Then it went to, can we do a specific type of business? Then he was in class one day and he learned about advertising models. Then he's like, maybe we should do something in advertising. Then he's like, where's one place that advertising hasn't hit? And I guess he came out with calves. And then from there, we went into what else can we do, right? And we started Brookline. Then we started to move to Boston. And that's like where the story got really interesting. So it sounds like you didn't care so much about what idea, you just wanted to be an entrepreneur, and then you were just thinking of stuff and trying to execute on it. So was was this friend of yours the person that was going out and trying to do the sales and validate? We, at the beginning, both did sales. Um, I was uh, the worst possible <laughs> person behind a phone. Um, there were times I literally called someone, they answered, and I hung up. <laughs> and I was really nervous. I didn't know how to quite talk to people who wanted to know the idea. Um, I had to actually like listen to my co-founder on calls and record him and then just repeat back word for word what he said just because I was so nervous. But still, you were able to make yourself pick up the phone and call, even though sometimes you would hang up. How did you make yourself do it? How did you get the confidence to do it? Uh, it's a good question. Um, ultimately, and this is with everything, it starts with small steps and it eventually becomes bigger. Um, I picked up a phone. Okay, so what actually happened is uh, right after we got the Brookline cab signed up, we went to a bunch of uh, restaurants and bars in Brookline near the cab company and we asked all of them if they want to advertise. 100% of people said no. <laughs> and um, they all said it was probably the worst idea they've heard, heard their lives. But at that time, I was like, we need to do something. A full year had gone by. We had tried to do a bunch of ideas. This is the summer after. And this is the one that stuck. And so 
I said, hey, like, let's just go for it and see what happens. We have an entire summer to iterate through this. Let's not try to blow it by coming up with a bunch of ideas like we did last summer. We have something that has legs. Let's go for it. And um, what happened is I wanted to make the idea work so bad that what I did is when we started going into bars, we started talking to people in person or we started calling them. I just try to find little ways that I could connect with them. And there wasn't a lot for a 19 year old kid with very little experience and just mostly obsessed about tech. Um, I tried to connect to people about why I was really interested in this idea. And first I started connecting with people around the technology we were using and like finding vendors for our system. Then when I got confidence there, then I started calling other people and I said, hey, like we have this idea of like advertising the back of the cabs. It's with, a television screen and allow you to get your word out there much better. I sound much better than I did. I stuttered <laughs> through every word. I was really nervous. And some people were like, no, and call me back in a year. And I said, yes. And I actually did call these people back in a year. <laughs> but the the big thing I think helped me get over it is that when some people would just talk to me because they could sense that I was new and they may have taken pity on me or they were just like, trying to humor me for some reason. Um, They thought it might have been a college project or something. Mm. And I think that uh, got me the foot in to be confident enough to do it. And we talk a lot about use what you can to your advantage. In this case, I guess it was that you were a college student, but also you identified that in some instances, they just kind of resonated with you and the story that you told. And that's what you capitalized on. How did you end up actually closing the first advertiser? Yeah, so uh, it took a while. And it took a lot of calls. It, we actually had a, um, a pretty interesting agenda every day. We would wake up at, in the morning. He would wake up at 8. Then he would wake me up at 9. Then uh, we would uh, get breakfast, start the calls at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, go all the way till 7 p.m. Eastern Time because it was 4 p.m. Pacific Time. So we would go from the East Coast to the West Coast. And then we would call a bunch of people on our list. We'd focus on a specific kind of industry with all the companies. And we would get, I think, 90% rejection. And then the 10% people who didn't reject us were like, give us more information, like a media kit or whatever. And a lot of that was like learning a bunch of stuff on our own. It wasn't until we started going to advertising agencies that we realized that we had something that was valuable. Before that, we were calling restaurants, bars, we were calling like random businesses, we were calling like pet, like like grooming centers, like anybody we could call. And then it wasn't until we started talking to advertising agencies and they started telling us about media kits, they started telling us like how to professionalize a business that we really, and then there was people in advertising agencies that wanted what we could sell and they started coaching us through this stuff. Now, you ended up getting to Techstars at that point. It was a fairly young program, but it was still one of the top two uh, in the space as an incubator accelerator program at the time. You got a little bit of money. You raised how much? 50K from angel investors, was it? Yeah, we raised 50K at that point. 50K. um, And then you ended up selling that business. How did the sale come about? What was really interesting is that we started off as like these, like we had no idea what we were doing as college kids. And by the end of it, we became fairly sophisticated understanding that specific space. And all it came down to is that we just woke up every single day. 
went to whoever we needed to talk to and then just focus our efforts there. We didn't do anything else because there was nothing else we were good at, right? And so there wasn't this thing like, hey, like, you know, I am like, there's these 50 things that we should do. It was like, hey, we have one thing that'll make or break this company. We have no money. We have only thing we could do is sell. And so uh, we became very good at selling. And at one point we had more cab drivers uh, or uh, medallion owners is technically who we had to sign up, um, signed up to our service than Verifone did. And Verifone's the multi-billion dollar company that will do whatever it takes to win. And it was embarrassing for them that <laughs> they had an, uh, a startup of like 19 year old kids that they knew raised less than a million dollars. Cause you know, we don't have any sec filings against our business name. And, um, they, we just crushed them, right? Like they had 200 cabs signed up. We had 430. Right. And so it was like, um, it was very embarrassing. And so there was a few people we could sell the company to, and they were they were very aggressive in getting it. But did you actually have a product? Because you said you were selling the whole time. Did you actually develop this television screen or this, this system that could show advertisements? Because Verifone had a product. How did you sell this if you didn't have anything? We actually built everything in 40 hours of development at time. So we had a team of three people. We worked maniacally around the clock. If we weren't working, we were in class. And if we weren't in class or working, uh, we were asleep. And so all we did all day every day was we we worked on different parts of the businesses so as the sales started to get off the ground and we started to validate okay advertisers really care about this this is what they want that they want basically a google adsense for out-of-home advertising that still doesn't quite exist today uh, which is metrics oriented and like how many people are seeing it what's the retention what's their like level like all of these metrics then we started building the product and the product was written in python it was very crude um it was built with like a library that you know i don't know if it's still around um and we just did whatever it took to make it like uh i had i had um hired a friend from class who turned out to be like one of the best programmers in school um and in like less than the amount of time it took them to put an update to their software we'd built the whole thing from scratch so it was software that you could plug into the existing hardware the cabs already had. So all you had to do, all they had to do was use your software. That would be nice. Um, we actually <laughs> had to buy uh, $5 million worth of equipment. So we had to have the computer in the system, we had to have the TV screen, and we had to have the partition. Now Uber is everywhere, but if people have taken a cab, you'll know that there's a partition. That partition itself is $2,500 a cab. Um, you have to change it because it doesn't work in every single type of partition. And um, we did make it work for both powered and not powered partitions. It doesn't really matter the difference, but the point is that we've spent a lot of work trying to make it work in a lot of different partitions. Even then, it still needed to install new ones. We still needed to install the ca a computer under the seat. We still needed to wire the whole thing. So per cab, and we're looking at 200 cabs, it was about $3,000 a cab to install everything. And you actually deployed this? This was live? No, the deployments weren't going to start until March of the year. It turned out it got delayed until June, and there was a bunch of delays. But what happened is that when the medallions were signed up, we were ready to raise money. The challenge of raising money in this time period was that it was 2008, 2009. So the economy had collapsed and people weren't sure if we were going to get back on our feet. And so we had investors who literally said, I cannot invest because I've lost an entire percentage of my net worth mm -hmm. this today, right? <laughs> like, 
I mean, we're not talking about like investors are generally not like regular people. They have millions of dollars in their name. The people who supported us were friends and family, but even they were nervous about what was happening to their net worth. A lot of the people we talked to were like um, cash rich, but they didn't really understand startups. And around the same time we were raising, Sequoia had released the Black Deck, which is that hey, you shouldn't invest in any new companies. You should double down on the ones that you already invested in. So to be clear, though, you didn't actually end up buying $5 million of equipment, right? No, we could not. We we had to like, uh, we were actually kind of scared because we had so many cabs signed up that if we were not able to deploy, we thought that we would have uh, financial penalties from the city of Boston. So what does signed up mean? Did they actually pay you? Uh, signed up means that we legally had a contract that we were the... Um, only people who can install this equipment in their cab and they had to uh, use our system only. So the reason why I'm focusing so much on this and we'll move on from this business in a second is that to me, even sitting now, it sounds kind of scary. Like the whole prospect of selling hardware and software to this crazy behemoth of an industry, yet to you, it wasn't scary. Or maybe it wasn't somehow you look past it. Tell me how it's possible that a 19, 20 year old wasn't intimidated by that. Or at least how did you shut that away if you were intimidated you're too stupid to be intimidated right what you don't know will not kill you and in some cases it will but then you're dead um, <laughs> um the the way that we got over it is that we just worked like there wasn't a thing like oh this is a software and a hardware business inside of a taxi industry it was like hey this is what we want to do and what what is it that what is a step that we have to take to make this happen it sounds like you focused on execution and uh, the secret there was just hard work. I mean, most people wouldn't get up at 9 or 10 a.m. when they're 19 years old to cold call all day until 7 p.m. and then go to class. It's just simply not what people are willing to do. But I guess it was your desire to start a company that pushed you through what most people would give up on. Yeah, I was rejected by YC. Uh, my co-founder, Suman, had been rejected by somebody. And like we both wanted to prove that we could do this, right? Not to them, but like to ourselves, right? And um, at the time, we were both also trying to pick up women. So we thought this was our <laughs> way to get them, right? <laughs> hey, that's, a great, that's a great motivator. Uh, let's fast forward to a couple of years uh, in the future where you graduated, you moved on from this business. Um, I remember you moved to New York and you were working as a software engineer while uh, while trying to get your next idea off the ground. And I remember asking you what you're working on. And you said, oh, yeah, I'm going to build self-driving cars. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, man? Like, this is in this is two, way before. This yeah. is, yeah, this is like 2010, 11, when uh, self-driving cars were not really on anybody's radar, maybe, maybe on Google's radar. Uh, and that's about it. Investors were not actively talking about it. So how did you come up with this new idea? This is, again, a huge, crazy idea that most early 20s people wouldn't think of. Was it just like a personal interest and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this? And is this, again, the case of you trying to prove this to yourself that you can build a big, massive company? Or, or, you, or were you just pompous? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at this time, what had happened, and I, I remember talking to you about it, is I had been following the uh, DARPA car challenge for quite a while. They had an autonomous car challenge where they were getting a bunch of teams to drive through the desert fully autonomously. And I was starting to follow that in high school. And I was thinking about it for a while, like, how would you do this? How would you create a self-driving car? And by this time, it was becoming more and more obvious that 
um, self-driving cars are going to be the future. Now, I don't know why it was so obvious to me, but it started to become more obvious that Uber is around, Lyft is around. And if these business models needed to work at scale, like they can't keep hiring all these people. I knew the taxi industry pretty well. I knew like where the cost was going to. And so it was to me like, okay, cities, you shouldn't be driving cars. It's too congested. It's too weird to like be going around and saying, hey, like I'm going to have an SUV in New York City or S- uh, San Francisco. So it's like the only way to resolve this is small cars, micro mobility is what the term is now, or uh, urban mobility and, and completely autonomous because I mean, people want to be on their phones, right? Like when you started to look at like the number of fatal accidents increasing because of cell phone usage, you knew that that uh, culture had shifted to cars not being the primal uh, driver of freedom. It was really being on a cell phone to your friend and I mean, I've seen footage of somebody live streaming on Instagram and rolling over a car and killing her sister. And so that is starting to happen more and more. And self-driving cars is the only solution to that kind of problem. Yeah, but but why did you think you're the one to do it? Oh, if you don't do it, no one else will. I mean, that's the entrepreneurial credo, right? Like, if you wait for others to do something, you'll wait until you're dead. So then (laughs) what was your first step towards starting a self-driving car company? Uh, reading as much as possible on every, um, every, so figure out who the winning teams were from the, the DARPA challenge, figure out what they did. So read their, um, white papers, um, understand what you don't know, find people who know that stuff. So I started a meetup group for people to come by, started off really great. Started with 75 people, um, cause they thought we had a self-driving car. Then they came very disappointed, left very <laughs> disappointed, um, but from there, we found people who knew pieces of what I needed to learn. I ended up meeting someone who'd worked on this Google self-driving car. And then from there, more and more pieces come together. And I think you just have to be like very deliberate about learning as much as you can. So clearly you're a visionary, but also you have a lot of skills uh, at this point. You're a CTO, so you have a lot of technical skill. You've been around the block as a salesperson as well. Having started multiple companies now and being a visionary, which is not what every, everybody can say about themselves, what do you think then is the most important quality for somebody that's starting a business or somebody that's starting a, a business that they think might have the chance to be big? This is what I've messed up a lot. And um, it goes back to your question of like, how do you not get intimidated? It's... Uh, in the last company I started with YC and even um, in some of the more recent efforts I had, uh, you start focusing too much on where you want to be and not what you have to do. And I think that what I am relearning constantly is that you just have to put your head down and continue to work and not worry about the end goal, right? Because the end goal is nice. The vision is nice. It gets people around you working and it gets people to join the the dream. But at the end of the day, there's every day you have to do something to contribute there. But if the end goal is so far, like I think about this sometimes for Elon Musk, for example, the end goal of getting people on Mars is so far. For you starting this self-driving car company, knowing that there's like technical limitations to getting self-driving cars on the road, the end goal was going to be so far from from today. Then how did you stay motivated just day in and day out since it was so far away that that gratification? Well, actually, um, the self-driving car company ended up morphing um, and that ended up coming so at first we were really interested and i was building towards it and we were getting um stuff going but then 
what ended up happening is a lot of people kept reinforcing how far away the dream was, right? And that's a difference that I think is inherent in um, the the world of New York versus San Francisco is that uh, when you're around people that continue to reinforce how far away you are, you will just focus on that. Mm. Um, when you're surrounded by people who just focus on the work that needs to be done day to day, then you'll focus on that. When you're surrounded by people who think that nothing is too big, then you'll continue to think bigger and bigger. So a lot of it comes down to who you surround yourself with. In college with Amp Idea, I was surrounded by people who didn't know any better except like we need to do some work. In New York, I was surrounded by people like this is impossible, this will never work. And that's why we ended up morphing the idea. And now back in the West Coast, people are continually reminding me that I'm not thinking big enough. Interesting. So then if you want to adjust who you surround yourself with, how do you proactively start that process? Uh, go to where you're going to be most successful in finding that community. That can be, I mean, New York has big thinkers. Like if you think about the world of crypto or you think about the world of like finance or any of that stuff that got invented here, right? Like a lot of the early Silicon Valley investors come from New York. It's not an not a lot of, it's not like people here think small. It's just that they think big in realms that you have to also be excited about. If you're thinking big in tech, then go to Silicon Valley, right? You can find communities locally. You could go to your college and find a bunch of people. You only need two or three people that, that reinforce your uh, desires. You could do it by yourself and you do meet everybody online. But uh, being physically present and like getting dinner and drinks, like even just our relationship, like we continue, as you mentioned in the beginning, like continue being cheerleaders for one another. That actually goes a far, like, like go, takes you really far versus like surrounding yourself by people who are like, yeah, this could work if we were Google or this could work if we were had billions of dollars, but it won't work because we're who we are today. So then how do you know if you're, thinking big or if you're being delusional and doesn't matter? Uh, the difference between delusion and vision is execution. So if you're not executing, then you're you're not going to get there. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, Steve Ballmer has both, when he was at the top of his game, talked negatively about both Amazon and the iPhone. And he said that these are not real businesses. They're like just uh, fantasy projects, right? Like, for Amazon, he said you need to be profitable, and for iOS, he said or iPhone, he said no one's going to pay seven hundred dollars for a phone. Both are now visionary companies, right? But at the time, everybody was counting them out. Like if you look through like twenty years of Amazon history, nobody thought they were going to make what they made today. That's a great point of view. You need if you're not executing or if you're not making moves and seeing some progress, then then maybe you aren't the person to do it. But for you, in particular, the self-driving car idea, you had worked on for a couple of years in different ways. You helped pass legislation in New Jersey that would make it easier for self-driving cars to get on the road. But then you did change that idea a little bit because people were telling you this is too far from reality. And changing that idea or adjusting it or morphing it a little bit did ultimately end up helping you get into Y Combinator and raise several million dollars so what happened? What changed from the crazy initial idea that you have to then being able to get people behind you? What did you change in your approach? So we started to figure out where can self-driving cars be most useful. And we thought uh, logistics of moving cargo because more cargo gets moved in the country than um, 
almost anything, right? And uh, so when we were looking at self-driving cars moving cargo, we started looking at logistics and we realized there's a lot of problems that were needed to be solved before you could get to self-driving cars everywhere, right? Now, I mean, you hear the fantasy every day of like self-driving cars are going to replace every truck driver. But um, if you look at the warehouse, there's not enough automation there to make a self-driving truck be like this major improvement. I mean, it'll be major for like interstate uh, uh, movement, but like how do you get to the dock, right? How do you get through the gate? How do you get through like um, uh, warehouses where they don't have a, a standardized approach for pulling in? Like there's so many little problems that were like, if we could solve any of these singular problems, then um, that's actually a bigger jump towards automation than to build a self-driving truck. That's not to take away from the companies that are doing self-driving trucks. They're going to be super successful, but um, we have a large distance to to um, to meet before that becomes the reality for everybody in the United States. And so we started to evolve it to become more pragmatic. So then as you think about big ideas in general and attacking them, have you shifted your thinking and approach now? Because something that you mentioned earlier on is, okay, if you're thinking big and you want reinforcement of that, you need to surround yourself with more of the types of people that can essentially keep you going and, and I guess be positive about the fact that you might be crazy. Uh, if you want to be more of an executor, then uh, again, surround yourself with those types of people. But at a certain point, it sounds like you need to be able to get other types of stakeholders to agree with you so that you can then start realizing your big picture vision. So if you're trying to achieve something big now, are you saying that at first, try to pare it down to smaller, more achievable problems and focus on those? If you're trying to solve something really big, the you have to start small, right? You have to start with very small steps to validate it. The idea that like all these inventors like bet the farm and like did something major from like ground zero with a with a breakthrough um, is just part of the myth. The reality is that um, you know, Edison had thousands of prototypes before he came up with the light bulb, right? Like he brought that up specifically to show how hard it was. And he also didn't start to popularize the light bulb until he could get the electric grid into play, right? And then he started to research ways to do that. And then, uh, you know, there was the, the debates between Tesla and Edison. But the point is that like he thought through like, what is it going to take for people to use my idea? And he started small and then he ended up like, changing the whole way we think about electricity and light and he built a business off of it now whether or not he was a bad manager whether or not he was like the best scientist doesn't matter we're all here today able to like record this at night because of edison's deliberate drive ahead now that's how i think everything gets started you start really small and then you just iterate until you get it right then you do the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing because at any point edison or ford or any of these major business people could have kind of stepped back and said, this is way too big. We're not going to solve it. And it is if you just focus on the end, if you focus on like, hey, for this light bulb, what is the type of material I need for the filament to make this work? Right. And that's all they focused on. Like everything else had kind of figured out. Right. It was just like, how do you keep the light on long enough? Interesting. So you have faith that you will figure out the bigger things down the line, the bigger abstract problems down the line. But what can you figure out right now 
And then at the same time, how can that provide enough value for somebody that will actually have this be a business that can survive to the next point? Yeah, that's what I've constantly struggled with is like moving out of the research lab and being more of an entrepreneur. And like what ends up happening is when you be more Edison, less Tesla, right? Like instead of focusing on like everything that can like change the world, focus on exactly what you said. Like, what can I do right now with the skills that I have, with what I know? And maybe you need to learn a little bit, but I can bring it to somebody and they can tell me whether or not on the right track, right? Like the hard part about the self-driving car thing is that uh, the approach I took there, which was not super productive was, at one point, we're like, it's an all or nothing. I learned everything, and now I've got to make a self-driving car. That is not the way to go about it. Um, but when we started the next company, it was a lot more iterative, right? Which was like, hey, like now we have something that works for warehouses of software. Can we expand it so that other people can use it? Then we started to extend it like, okay, now other people can use this. Can we make it an API? Because that's a more natural interface in this like thing. Then we were like, can we build a website around this? And then it just kind of kept growing and growing. But uh, yeah, I think that's the right. To clarify for our audience, that big idea of self-driving cars then morphed into this idea of autonomous robots that could be used in warehouses to help with logistics. And then you started a company around that. And of course, now there are robots being used everywhere in Amazon warehouses and other companies. So that definitely was a good idea. And I think that's part of the reason why you were able to raise funds around it. And now you're a CTO of a company that does um, uh, logistics for trucking. Yeah, so we're a finance company in the logistics space. What we do is we buy um, invoices or accounts receivables from truck drivers at a discount. But the exciting part there is how do you do this at scale? How do you do it without um, with some of the new technology that's coming out today, right? And I think we've spoken about this a little bit. Is like what's the excitement around crypto and not the currency aspect, but like how do you create credit markets around this? So can you build more of like a Goldman Sachs that doesn't need to be Goldman's like do you go through Goldman Sachs so sounds like you're you're keeping busy uh, and continuing to use your technical skills that you developed but still thinking big I know that you just moved into an apartment on Long Beach overlooking the ocean and there's a deeper story here of why you decided to live in front of the ocean Profil recently after uh, becoming a certified scuba diver became obsessed with killer whales <laughs> tell us about your next big idea because I would never think of this concept and somehow you did, and you continue to surprise us every time we see you about this next crazy thing you're thinking about. Yeah, so this is um, definitely uh, starting off as more of a hobby than it will be as a company. And there's two reasons for that. One, um, when you keep things as a hobby, the stress is way, way, way lower, and you can be more iterative about it rather than jumping in like, I need to make a ton of money all of a sudden with this. I've been leading myself down this line of thinking for a while, which is that ocean levels are rising. We don't know enough about the ocean. Global warming is a thing. Um, and so we can find ways to reverse it or we can try to figure out what's like the worst case scenario where ocean levels are higher and we now are flooded and now we have to figure out what to do. So part of it was I have this obsession of wanting to live underwater from a very, very young age. I don't know why, but I've <laughs> wanted to do that for a long time. And um, part of it was that as I was studying artificial intelligence, I was like, okay, what are the most intelligent lives, life on earth besides human beings? And it came to killer whales. 
So a lot of stuff just kind of came together at the same time, which was like, I was thinking of all these different ideas with global warming and climate change and killer whales and artificial intelligence that I was like, okay, I just need to take the plunge, literally. And I need to go underwater and figure out what's happening down there. So I started to like uh, watch a bunch of Netflix documentaries. I started to like get myself really ramped up about like killer whales. I started to read like research papers about them. And I realized that they have a lot of similarities to us. And then what was really striking was the documentary Black Fish and how they ended up like having some hardship when you remove whales from a tank. And so I started to realize, recognize that there might be something here that we're missing, that we need to study this more intensively and we're not doing that. And the way to do that is to actually live completely underwater for a long period of time in a environment that is both friendly to human beings and to these animals and also to get used to living underwater because at some point I think it might be necessary for the human race to do so. So it goes back to how do you start small and then iteratively get bigger. The idea you want me to bring up is that I want to build a submarine company that allows you to live underwater completely for two to three years at a time. Um, it's very big, kind of surrounded by glass, so you can see outside and the outside can see you. And um, you can constantly study it and then there'd be a pressurized chamber which you can allow whales or other life forms to come inside. So you're still breathing air and they're you know in the water and you can study these and touch them directly. Um, that idea came from the fact that when I was going to SeaWorld one time as a young um, lad, um, <laughs> I was able to touch a killer whale alive. And that was like the strangest feeling ever. And I remember asking her, like, do you ever get scared that they'll eat you? And she looked at me like very afraid that that was true. And But she tried to brush it off like, no, these guys are trained. But it seemed to me that moment that like these are the most powerful, intelligent animals in the ocean. We know so little about them except for what we know in captivity. And to start super small, I started scuba diving. Now I'm going to start scuba diving with uh, research groups that work with killer whales. Then I'm going to start scuba diving with research groups that are working like with dolphins, like in, in the Bahamas or wherever they go. And then it's to find out what are the things that they need that, you know, would m improve their research. I, I know a lot about data science and AI. So can I apply that learning to, to understanding dolphin vocalization, then, you know, start establishing a community that can help me understand like where I can take the next thing. Maybe it's not a mega yacht submarine that'll take some time, but maybe it's like a, a smaller research submersible that we go and study um, animals for a longer duration of time than it's normal. And like, then we just kind of iteratively build up until we have a research community, we have a revenue, we have uh, grants, we have all the stuff built up. Then we can say, hey, like let's spend, you know, $100 million building a submarine, not Let's, you know, spend the next 10 years looking to raise that much money. <laughs> well, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of swimming with killer whales in your future. I got to ask, do you have a next of kin? If not, can you name us in your... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I don't have an extra kid. I don't Good. have a living will, but you can take some of my possessions after my brother takes Perfect. them. Perfect. Well, there's actually a, a lot that was uncovered here. Um, I think that in order for you to think big, which we think is really important, there was a couple things that happened. When you started off with a business with the cabs, you just wanted to build a business. And so because you didn't really care and you were really young and naive, uh, you probably just thought as big as you could because you didn't know anything, and that helped you. You were intrinsically interested in building a big business, and that alone allowed you to push through. The next time around, 
when you wanted to start a self-driving car, you mentioned you were interested in this since high school. So clearly you had been reading about it. It's been in your brain. Maybe even that's why you started taking coding classes and became an engineer because you were inherently interested in there. So there was some interest there as well uh, that kind of propelled you to think about that. Now, again, you have some intrinsic interest because you are want to do something a lot more impactful. And given the given climate change, given the current administration, given kind of the rabbit hole that you're just diving into now, you're exploring different ways that you can potentially have that impact. And that interest, again, is driving your big idea. But aside from being interested, it sounds like you need to also surround yourself with the right people, but then also pare it down to a smaller problem that's more achievable that you can solve now to ultimately get to that big goal. Would you say those are probably the fundamental characteristics of what you need to, how you need to think in order to think big more consistently? Because if somebody out there is listening and they want to be better at thinking big, what are sort of parting words that you would tell them? That's exactly right. Like start small, iteratively improve. And even if your idea seems small today, it may actually not be as small as you think when you build it up. Like uh, Airbnb was just literally airbeds on a floor and breakfast but they've now iterated into a multi-billion dollar company that's now the most well-known and most established out of the Y Combinator community. Um, A lot of things start very small, but once you achieve that, you'll be surprised at how fast that expands. And I think even the way you unpacked your future plan of having underwater submarines where we all live underwater, you have like a, um, I mean, it's a multi-year, maybe even a multi-decade plan of how you might get there. And you have actually concrete achievable steps that you will take. And then you're also now open-minded enough to know that it might morph into something a little bit different at a certain point. But this big idea is what seems like it keeps you interested and keep you anchored. So when you wake up every morning, and thinking about this idea, like, what do you think about? Do you think about the next step or do you think about that big vision? It's always fun to keep the big vision, um, which is why I'm now living in front of the ocean, along with the view. It's a constant reminder of where you need to be. But at the end of the day, you still need to do something today. It can't be to think about your vision. It's to find a way to make it real. I love that. Do something today. We talk about that a lot. Prof will just reinforced it. Do something today, but allow yourself to think big uh, because, again, if you don't do it, nobody else will. And uh, you almost owe it to yourself because you only live once. And there's not a lot of people out there that, A, have a brain that works that way, but B, will ever actually do the hard work and put the pedal to the metal, which sounds like you've been doing throughout your whole career. Prof Mather, you're... Amazing uh, love and you. inspiring and sexy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> now, now you say good things about us. <laughs> well, this is awesome. I'm so yeah. glad that you guys invited me onto your podcast. Yeah, we want to have you back. I guess the next milestone that we require in order to be back on the show is have the prototype of the submersive uh, submersive submarine. Well, so. the cool thing <laughs> is that this is going to be the first recording on record and hopefully publication on record where you talk about this. And in 20, 30 years, when this is a real thing, uh, we can say that we were the first ones to have you on the show. So thanks for coming on, Prabhu. Thank you.